everyone, and welcome back to New Way, the podcast that explores the connections between people, their communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. If you've been a fan of New Way for a few years, you may come to expect our curated Jingle Bell intro music once the holidays roll around. It's time for our Christmas episodes. Today, a conversation all about the Incarnation with two individuals from opposite ends of the globe who come together in Linda Vista, California to start a church called Ebenezer. I want you to think about calling. I want you to then wrestle with commitment and we gave them seven years. I said you wrestle on whether you can give seven years and if you can check those two boxes then be in our living room on November 6th and we're gonna tell you the cause. I don't want to waste time talking to you about cause when you have no commitment and if you have no sense of calling to what we're doing. We have neighbors with difficult stories, immigration stories that are tough. I don't want to remove bandages off these things only for you to leave four months later like you always do. Today's guests, Noel Musicha, who also goes by Noxie, and Jeremiah Lester, have been working with neighbors in Linda Vista, California for the past six years to start a church where the goal is to be a people's cathedral, a church of the community, by the community, and for the community. In part one of our conversation, we explore the call to make a commitment and how a chance encounter in Noel's homeland of Malawi planted the seeds for a friendship and partnership with others thousands of miles away. Let's jump right in. Jerry and Noel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a pleasure. Glad to be here. It's been a long time coming. Hmm. I was actually curious, I don't know the answer to this question, if you all have a story about the first time you met one another. So Jeremiah Lester... Uh, born and raised in the Bay Area, and coming up on 20 years with my wife, also named Noelle. And it gets very, gets very, very awkward around here. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to do weird things with how you set them up in my phone. Like, who's oh, yeah. favorite list? When he starts to say, my Noelle, and clearly I think that's me. You're right, of course. <laughs> and then yeah. it turns out it's not me. It's not actually you. <laughs> <laughs> there have been hurt feelings and awkwardness mm -hmm. because of this. But yeah, yes. my Noel and I have been married almost 20 years. We have three kids, Eva Grace, Silas, and Mikey. And we moved down here to San Diego almost six years ago okay. coming up. So, uh, so I'm Noel Musicha, um, originally from Malawi in Southeast Africa. And have been in the States for about, ooh, what is this, 18 years? or so years, 19 years, been married to my wife, Melissa, for about 16 years or so. We have three children as well, Jazara, Theo, and Israel. Back in 2006, I was leading a team with my former church up in the Bay. And the backstory is when I was in college, my professor took me to Zimbabwe for the whole summer. And it was life-changing, life-transforming. And I knew once I was in a position to begin taking teams that that was something that I wanted to do. And at the time, Zimbabwe was closed. So we, we researched this country, Malawi, which at the time was, you know, top three in terms of poorest nations on the planet. And without knowing anything else, we just said, let's go there. And took a team, did everything wrong. 
mm-hmm. everything wrong from savior complex to when helping hurts. I literally did everything wrong. And there are two redeeming aspects to that trip. The first one is here on this podcast. <laughs> it was on one of those days where my wife, Noelle, came back and she said, hey, I just met this guy. His name is Noel. You have to meet him. He's brilliant. I know you'll be friends. And I just started laughing. I was like, babe, we're on the other side of the world in a foreign country. You just think I'm going to meet this guy. Yeah, this is pre uh, all the tools we're using right now, isn't it? Yeah. No way of staying in touch. No way of staying in touch. I didn't even have his last name. But that night, we show up at a basketball game. And my wife said, you see that guy in the corner with the red shoes? That's Noel. So I went over, I introduced myself, and we became friends. You know, he had already come over here to San Diego. He was working already, but he would go back and forth to Malawi to start his nonprofit, which is still going today. But that started a friendship and a brotherhood that just continued over the years and evolved into like a really close friendship and brotherhood. Amazing. Yeah, what's your side of the story, Noel? So, yes, Jerry, when they were waking out there in Malawi, yeah, obviously that connection got made. And then I realized that when they were in their work, they were working with one of my really close friends. The relationship just kind of started to build from there. And then back here in the States, while he was in the Bay and I was in San Diego, our ministry trajectories just kind of started to go in the same direction, if you may. Mm-hmm. same desires, same longings, but being in two different places. I will say I never imagined him being down here in San Diego. If anything, I did imagine a little going to join him up in the Bay. Yeah. So that's a very interesting how God orchestrated the story in the end. It's kind of a mysterious topic, I think, for a lot of us in the world is how you decide if you are where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there is a moment for either or both of you when you began to realize that Linda Vista or San Diego is like, I'm not actually leaving. I'm not, you know, this is the primary place for this season. Yeah. So the, you know, I was in Linda Vista working at a church that was more of like a commuter church Mm -hmm. that met in the neighborhood. And in the by and by, I kind of started getting connected and involved in the community an under-resourced community, one of the six most distressed neighborhoods in San Diego. And as I started to meet, especially young people, because I, you know, I coach soccer, as I started to meet, especially young people, I started to hear their stories. I was like, oh my goodness, like there's something there. And I would hear stories, difficult stories, also, but also beautiful stories. And I would hear stories about, you know, guns and gang violence. And I was like, oh my God, like if, I heard the gunshot, right, that the kid is describing that next Monday. If I heard it the night before, mm-hmm. it changes my own sense of urgency mm. in terms of the work we are doing in the community. So I decided to, uh, my wife and I decided to move in the community. We had been in the community for about maybe even like 10 years without really understanding that we had a particular call to pastor here, just thinking, Lord, there's all these challenges. We wish someone could do something about it. <laughs> and then the fateful day. Mm-hmm. What Noxie said about us having similar trajectories is accurate. And I remember we both got to a point where, you know, nothing was wrong. 
You know, our church planting story is not born out of trauma from the church. I mean, everyone has trauma from the church, but you know, we had great jobs. I loved my former church mm -hmm. and they loved me. And I think we both arrived at this place of understanding that God was leading us to something different. And it wasn't because of personality conflict. It wasn't because like someone did something bad and we were running away from it. It was God clearly saying, there's this neighborhood. And I remember the phone call with Knox where I was just sharing that feeling of being stuck and even disappointment with where I thought the Lord was taking me and what I would be doing in the next phase of my life. And he began to describe Linda Vista, this place of heavy immigrants, right? There's a big Southeast Asian population. Mm -hmm. There's a big Hispanic population. Our diversity is off the charts. Mm -hmm. He began to explain the need for viable alternatives that the youth could latch onto and how you know just both of our backgrounds being youth pastors and being coaches and athletes how that could play into that and it just it was one phone call mm. and we both knew it was one strange phone call right it was one strange because i'm talking call. to jerry when the lord had spoken and said, you're crying about this constantly, right? Mm -hmm. You're seeing the need. You feel like something more should happen in the community. I facilitated that already. Yeah. And I called you <laughs> to do that. I was always resistant to pastoral ministry. When the calling became clear, I was like, oh my goodness. You walk me through all this path. Yeah. It's almost like I saw 14 years of my life in retrospect flash out really, really fast to say, okay, now this is a very important thing because in that moment, then I ask the question in different ways. If you're speaking to me, who else are you talking to mm. about this? Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really important question because especially in the West, we tend to want to run. As soon as we hear, okay, I'm going to go do that. It's me. It's like, no. And so it was quite clear in that process that the Lord was going to bring other people specific to the help we were going to receive to a man with an Asian heritage and a woman with a Hispanic heritage. And I remember telling people that I was like, this is, and I said that, but without really knowing who the people were. Mm -hmm. So when I was talking to Jerry, we we're just chit chatting, we we're catching up and I'm like, Hey, here's what the Lord is doing here. And then he's describing what the Lord is doing in his life and where he might go. And in the middle of the conversation, the Lord just said, tell him no. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't get to do that. <laughs> you tell him that. Hmm. I don't get to do that. So it's like somehow I said, San Diego. And I remember him on the phone call saying, bro, I just had chills. Hmm. I was like, why? And he's like, well, my mom has just moved to San Diego. His sister had moved here a while back, so she was living here. And I got so scared by that. <laughs> Just that little thing. I was like, I'm not going to touch it. Yeah. There's nothing here. I have absolutely nothing. Our account is about to hit zero, zero, zero. Yeah. So you pray into it. Yeah. And I'm not going to touch it. Yeah. He goes and he prays into it. You're envisioning this partnership and beginning to realize that the things that are available are not the things that, you know, if you made a list, maybe just off the cuff, practical assets to ministry 
funding. We shouldn't have been planning ministry. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's nothing to plan with. Yeah. You know, except the Lord had said the word, help is on the way. Mm. Help is on the way. Wow. Right? Okay. All right. Whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You guys said something, or Jared, was you, I think, in the video that we recorded in San Diego for the 1001 10-year anniversary. The exact wording is not coming to me, but essentially, like, you were, at this point in your ministry, trying to look for the hardest situations and wanting to be sent there rather than, you know, smooth, easier situations. Mm-hmm. Do you recall what you said? Yeah, Early on, we prayed for the toughest terrain. Toughest terrain. That was the language. And, you know, being a, a good pastor, there is an ideal there. <laughs> Not fully comprehending what we were stepping into and what really we were asking the Lord to give us. Mm-hmm. When you ask for the toughest terrain, you kind of envision folks in need. And after a few sermons, their life is transformed and they become this healthy tither all the time like <laughs> yeah con- that's all like the, time, the, the normal right? story right <laughs> right so you yeah. just have these romantic aspirations of what that means and what that includes mm-hmm. and to his credit noxy is relentless in bringing us back to center of this is why we exist we exist for those who don't fit in we exist for those on the margins we exist for the poor and we will do everything that we need to do on our end to make sure that they have a space that they can be a part of. Again, you said, well, Jerry, there's really no romance in that. It can feel romantic from a distance, but the fact that before we preached this past Sunday, you know, I received a phone call that said jail slash prison. And it's one of our members, you know, giving me an update on how things are going and it's those things, right? Yeah. But it's like consistent, I kid you not, I have been there on a Sunday where I am tired (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I've looked over and I've seen another new person. It's almost every Sunday a new person walks in and I've seen another new person walking in there broken in their mess. And I'm like, Lord, another one. Are you serious right now? And then, yes, Lord. Yes. Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes. Amen. Yeah. You know, and, Before we get too much further, we have our sister and good friend who makes up the third member of our pastoral trinity, if we can say that. Hispanic woman, African-American male, Asian heritage male. There's a reason for that, right? Because those are the major demographics of our neighborhood Mm -hmm. and representation matters. Yeah. And the Lord brought us Ruby, who was already practicing as a licensed family therapist. She's an MFT. And what she brings to our community, it just works. Mm. It just works. Mm -hmm. And also the metaphor that we've prayed that we can give the community of these three folks from very distinct groups, how we can create together Mm -hmm. as opposed to getting after it. That's been one of our most powerful metaphors Mm -hmm. and even sermons, right? On a week by week basis. Look, hey, you can put your stuff down. We don't have to fight. Mm. We can create. Mm. And it's so much more profitable, right? So Rubes plays, like she's the healer. You know, she's often the adult in the room. Mm. But man, the three of us, when we're able to share the load, right? Because like what Knox says is real. Mm -hmm. Man, like ministry is hard here. Mm -hmm. And there's no book 
and Bible school that prepared you for a guy wanting to fight you right before a sermon. That's real. That was real. Of your sermon being interrupted by a lady coming down clearly under the influence of meth, Mm -hmm. right? And disrupting the whole thing. So being able to share the load between the three of us has been such a gift. I would add there the families as well. Mm -hmm. The roles that our our spouses play in that space has been just really critical because Ebenezer is not the type of church that you stumble to. You have to really be going here. If you're coming here, if you're going here, you were going here. So it takes a lot of intentionality on our spouses, a lot of wrestling together about the ministry that the Lord has put before us. Mm -hmm. Right. When you all look back into those early days, how long has it been since that conversation and, w- and when you all were together in San Diego? How many years has it been? It's almost six, about six years. Six years, yeah. yeah. Right around this time. Yeah. And you had the wisdom to not one of you attempt this in a solitary fashion and to wait that the help was coming and acknowledging to one another eventually that like you are among the helpers that you've been waiting for. I was just thinking like, those early stages, a lot of new worshiping community leaders describe it as throwing spaghetti at the wall, I think, because in many contexts, folks don't want to go to church. They, And in a lot of contexts, you have a, a scenario where people feel that they do have what they need spiritually, materially, socially, that they are a self-made man or woman. Mm. And it's a very different context, I think, where you're trying to figure out what will get people to actually admit that they have a need for community and one another? Mm. Were you throwing spaghetti at the wall or did you, based on your relationship with youth ministry and young people or being on teams as coaches and soccer players, did that somehow influence what you did at the beginning? We were very intentional, Mm -hmm. super intentional because, and you know, I could speak for myself. I was a little concerned about just gathering people. Yeah. Partly because I do have that personality. You know what I'm saying? I didn't want people to get attracted to a personality thing. And then we can't really quite discern what the Lord is actually really doing because our personalities have gotten in the way. Yeah. Or like our leadership gifts have gotten in the way. Mm -hmm. So we were very into, in fact, I spoke to my friends and said, because I was already here, right? Yeah. I said, everyone that said they were interested, I said, I want you to discern on three things. One, I want you to think about calling. Could our relationship, does it have glimpses of calling? So are you called here, Mm -hmm. right? Two, I want you to then wrestle with commitment, and we gave them seven years. I said you wrestle on whether you can give seven years to something or don't come. I remember a friend of mine calling me, I think it was like the night before, they were supposed to be in a room, literally cursing me out. We've laughed about it since. Literally cast me out. I was like, why are you asking people for seven years? This is San Diego. Like nobody has seven years. I was like, seven years or don't come. And there was a reason to that. And third, so it was calling, commitment. And if you can check those two boxes, then be in our living room on November 6, 2016. And we're going to tell you the cause. Okay. I don't want to waste time talking to you about cause when you have no commitment and if you have no sense of calling to what we're doing, because, and I'll finish with this quickly, we have neighbors with difficult stories, immigration stories that are tough. Mm-hmm. I don't want to remove bandages of these things only for you to leave four months later like you always do. Yeah. yeah. 
So in the commitment that you're asking them for, you're ask you were like quite literally asking for their permanence in that geographic location for seven years. Yeah. Come and I'll tell you about our neighborhood, this uh-huh. commitment, this cause. Yep. Wow. Yep. How many people showed up? Twenty five people showed up. Okay. On that first day, I think about. Yeah. Twenty five people showed up and a lot of them still left. Yeah. Like eventually. Because this is no child's play. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about the spaghetti on the wall comment mm. and We've had our share of struggles, but that was never one of them. Mm-hmm. We understood the need as expressed from the neighborhood. Yeah. And one of the things we did early on was to try and listen as well as possible from you know the voices in the neighborhood. And we knew there was only so many things that we could focus on. But loving these young people, especially who are like right on the edge of being recruited into like the gang lifestyle. We were surprised at first by how quickly the houseless population found us and clung to us. Yeah. That wasn't part of the original vision. And we knew we could do like the skeleton aspect of church, right? We knew we could preach. We knew we could disciple. Those things I don't think really messed with us. It was how do we incorporate this incarnational approach mm-hmm. into a neighborhood that is deeply distrustful. They don't trust anybody, much less anyone in authority. Right. They struggle with, you know, making ends meet. You know, we have mamas here who are working two, three jobs at a time. This is our crew. And there's a lot of great churches in San Diego where other folks can find their home in. But we always knew, like, these are our people. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to you all knowing who your people are and being a part of the people as ministers among them. How did that shape the form of the church that you began to gather and live out? Or would you have called it church at that point anyways? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. We are very, we want to be clear of the fact that we love the church. We love Jesus' church because a lot of the people that we gathered at the beginning and even ourselves were in that deconstruction phase. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to be clear that we don't deconstruct because we don't love. We're deconstructing out of love, but also to understand that sometimes it's easy to deconstruct. It's really difficult to reconstruct a world that you really want to live in faith-wise. And I think we face that, you know, but from the very beginning, We were intentional about this being a church. We were intentional about, though it's got many of these characteristics, make it look like a parachurch organization. Hmm. But it's like, no, we're not just another nonprofit. We are a church. But we're going to be as practical as possible. And you can see this in our rhythms as a community. Mm -hmm. I wonder why... Growing up Presbyterian, I heard this a lot. I was like, oh, that's a parachurch. That's not a real church. Like why we have this obsession of distinguishing something that we would call parachurch that is like not authentic or it is certainly when it is said that way, it is an insult. It's intended Mm. as an insult or a leveling down Mm. of Mm. an activity Mm. that does not center around I mean, what I can distinguish is church in a building, a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. with the same set of people and a board of directors. It's interesting having the conversation in the church 
versus outside the church, right? Yeah. So like when you're outside the church, it feels like you should position yourself more as a parachurch so that you're not having to worry about the Jesus conversation. But when you're in the church, it feels like you should position yourself more as, oh, we are church so that you don't have to worry about Christians critiquing what you are. So mm. I, all I'm saying is you bring mm -hmm. up a really good point. And funny, I think Jesus' church probably look a lot more like the para thing <laughs> than the other. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah. it's just fascinating. I think yeah. you know, that distinction speaks more to capitalism than it does to the church. Okay. And that was one of the things that we struggled with early on, you know, just this model of church being 90% of its resources devoted to a three-hour window on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And the rest of what the church was called to do in terms of discipleship, in terms of reaching those who are sick and hurting, we had to outsource that because we just didn't have enough time because we were too busy spending money and time on Bible studies at the church or kids programs or whatever. And so that was something that really bothered both Noxie and I in the typical structure of the evangelical church that we grew up in. And so if we're going to do this, our staff, our pastors, we need to smell like sheep. Hmm. I don't want an office. We still don't have an office. Yeah. Right? Like during the week, you'll find us on the campus. You'll find us on the streets, right? Mm -hmm. We want to emphasize, we'll see you on Sunday here, but throughout the week, our call is to be out in the community. Friends, that's it for part one. But we'll be back next week with part two of my conversation with Jer and Noel. In the meantime, you can visit Ebenezer and find ways to support and join the ministry at EbenezerChurchSD.com. And please subscribe to New Way wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. Our fabulous producer is Martha Ames Sanders. You can always visit us online and see archives of all of our episodes at newchurchnewway.org. Catch you next time.